0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Last week we started the chapter and today we're going to finish it. We're actually going to start with verse 36. Now the first part we saw the Last Supper and the betrayal of Christ and today we're going to see Jesus' arrest and his abandonment by the disciples when he needed them most. So starting with verse 36. Says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. So we saw the Last Supper, which took place in Jerusalem, and then Jesus and the disciples crossed eastward over the the Brook Kidron into the Mount of Olives, and they end up here at Gethsemane, and Gethsemane means oil press. So you have your Mount of Olives. When the olives are harvested, they take it to a press. They press the olives, and then oil comes out. How fitting, because this is probably one of the most pressing times in Jesus's earthly ministry. So, Jesus knows what awaits him. He is fully God, but he is fully man, and he's needing a little encouragement at this time and prayer from his disciples. And what do they do? They fall asleep on him. Not once, but three times. Christ also wanted them to pray for their own good, not just for him. But for them, as Christ was always, others-centered. And we will find that the disciples didn't handle the arrest and the trials very well. Because why? They weren't prayed up. Now, I think we can make an analogy here. And I can tell you the truth that um, when something goes wrong in my life or there's a challenge in my life, and uh, I really step back and I say to myself, well, what do you expect? You haven't prayed enough about this. Yes, I do talk to myself, and hopefully I'm not the only one here who does that. And then there are are other times that things go remarkably well, and I know that I'm in prayer. And I tell you the truth, I can even sense that the body is praying. So it's very important to pray for your leaders because we need to be prayed up. Now, in verse 41, he says, Pray lest you enter into temptation. Sometimes we look at something and we think it's good. It's appealing to us. But if we're prayed up, God may show us and say, that looks good, but that's not for you. That's a temptation. It's a trap. Don't get sucked up in it, right? And Jesus was importantly wanting them to see this. In this chapter, we see another great nexus of Christ being fully God and fully man. The truth is, as a man, brutality awaits him. The Roman scourging was brutal. The beatings, the lack of sleep, the being thirsty, the uh, staying up all night, not getting any rest. And then worse is the crucifixion. However, as God, worse. Imagine the sins of the world on a holy and just God. Not fair. A paradox, if you will. But that's what awaits him. In verse 39, he speaks about this cup. And he's spoken about the cup before, which was really emblematic. Probably a combination of, number one, the brutality. And it gets from bad to worse. Then the sins of the world. And then the separation from the Father. For the first time eternity, never to happen again. That the Father and the Son, who were one, were actually in a moment separated. Now, hard to wrap your mind around, all right? but that's what happened. Second Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him. Christ, who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's beautiful for us, but he got the, the bad end of the deal, so to speak. In Luke 22:44, 44, Dr. Luke, we see that it was so bad, the suffering that he went through the night before. Again, remember, he's fully man. The suffering that it was a condition where he sweat great drops of blood. Now, some would say, aha, the Bible is full of inconsistencies. But we know today there's a condition called hematohydrosis where the uh, capillaries wrap around the sweat uh, glands and under uh, conditions of extreme stress, the capillaries break and the blood gets into the sweat glands and mixes with the blood and they literally sweat blood. So uh, amazing stuff. Many years before anybody probably really put a name to it. But the most important thing to see is that those closest to Jesus on earth failed him when he desired their companionship. And what was the result on Jesus' part? Well, he didn't modify the divine plan. We would, right? We tweak God's plan, don't we? Maybe in prayer, God shows us something, and maybe we like 90% of it or less, and we want to put our 10% spin on it, but it doesn't work. And we find ourselves in trouble. I say, you know what? We should have just followed God's plan to begin with. But this is what happened. Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done. He was the perfect example of obedience to God. Now, he says one thing here that is profound. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 7, starting in verse 15. Romans 7, 15. Now, this is the apostle Paul who we all hold in high regard. And I love this. When I read this in the scripture, it gives me encouragement. So when I do the wrong thing and when I get frustrated with myself, I can see that the Apostle Paul did as well. And it's very deep. It may take a while for it to really sink in. But it says this in verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You ever feel like that? You know, we're, we're dichotomous beings. We're, we're spirit, but we're flesh. You know, we were almost more consistent before we were believers because we were just hell-bent on sin and didn't know it, didn't realize it, didn't care. But when we become believers, there's, we're born again, we have a new nature, and there's this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And it's beautifully exemplified in what the Apostle Paul says here. So the disciples, they went to sleep. Now, I have to tell you that there's times that the house could be burning down. I am just so tired. It could be a war. It could be, I really don't care. Babe, do you hear that? Honey, I'm just so tired. I mean, I'm just shot. I'm spent. And I don't want to open my eyes. I don't want to give it any thought. I don't want to give it any effort. And here the disciples were emotionally spent, physically spent, agonizing over these things, being with the Lord, and they just needed some sleep. And he's saying, but you can overcome this. It's a matter of the spirit that can conquer the flesh. So the disciples went to sleep. And sometimes the church is asleep. And sometimes we go to sleep spiritually because we focus too much on our fleshly needs and not on the spirit. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Then immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. A little excitement there. Betrayed with a kiss. Now we can look at the etymology of even the, uh, truthfully, the, the mobster's kiss of death. And we can trace it all the way back to the kiss of Judas. Uh, very interesting how phrases, the kiss of death, and, and going back and looking into the, the grammatical text and see where it comes from. But there's two Greek words here that are used. He says, the one who I kiss, it was one Greek word used. Now he says that he went up to Jesus, the Bible says, and he kissed him. That was a different Greek word. This is interesting. It was more of a lasting, more of a, an intimate kiss, not sexual, but more of a you know a deeper kiss than what he said initially that's pretty sick there's a proverb in proverb twenty-seven, seventeen that says faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful the sick part is the phoniness there the sick part is the rabbi oh rabbi give him a hug give him a kiss rabbi rabbi mwah, mwah, mwah. and hey hey wink wink nudge nudge this is the guy that i'm kissing over here you know people have yeah, right pretty messed up for his mind to be working like that. But some, you know, listen, you hear complaints about why some don't want to go to church. One of the reasons, I guess you could say in the top 10 is, well, there's a phoniness. Judas is the father of phoniness. You know, the looking at someone and smiling and and talking to them. And then as soon as you break that earshot, you're talking about them behind your back, that gossip, that slander. Judas betrayed the Lord, and he was the the epitome of that phoniness, okay? In verse 50, Jesus calls Judas, friend, why have you come? Of course, he knew why Judas had come, you know, a simple uh, lesson in Christology, uh, explaining what Jesus knew and what he didn't know, he was fully God, friend, why have you come? Even at that point, he gave Judas a way out, he gave Judas a, a, a time to reflect on what he was doing. But Judas didn't take it. And that's the beauty of Christ. He always gives us a way out. He always gives us a way to repentance. And that's so important. In verse 51, in John's gospel, and I love to take all four gospels together because they really create this beautiful picture where John thought this detail was important. Matthew felt this detail was important. In John 21, it says so many things happened in Jesus's short ministry that I suppose all the books of the world couldn't fit it. So this was the Bible that we have. They took the salient points under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what we have. But uh, look, taking it all together, we know that it was Peter, impetuous Peter, who drew the sword and cut off the ear of the high priest servant. Thank God he didn't have good aim. I'm sure he was maybe aiming for his neck or his chest, but all he got was his ear, all right? And this was, you know, I look at this as like a one-time act versus a lifetime act. And what do I mean by that? We know Peter was practicing his Zorro lesson, uh, but the bottom line is that he was, you know, he said he would defend the Lord, the Lord said he would abandon him, but Peter was gonna prove to the Lord how much he loved him, and he took out that sword, and he started swinging, now, what I mean by sometimes in a moment of adrenaline, we can try to prove ourselves, but, but how do we live for the Lord, right? Even in a marriage, I know that even some struggling marriages, really difficult marriages, that in a moment of crisis, that the husband would step in front of the bullet and take the bullet for his wife. It's almost to say, I would die for you, but I'm not sure I could live with you for the next 50 years. You see what I'm saying? So this is Peter, you know, in an act of impetuousness, he, um, he says, Lord, let me prove to you how much I love you. But then what happens after the arrest? He's gone, okay? In Mark 14, Judas says, take him safely. When you start putting the, the uh, study of Judas together, we don't see much of him, but he's a very interesting character. Take him safely, he says in Mark's gospel. Coupled with this earnest kiss, we wonder if he knew the magnitude of his sin, the magnitude of what he was doing. Later, we see him remorseful, giving the 30 pieces of silver back to the religious leaders. Right? But this is what sin does to a person. It makes them unstable. See, when you're in sin, all judgment now becomes nebulous. It becomes cloudy. It becomes a feelings game. Now, I'm just going to take for an example because I've seen this over the years, I've dealt with many who have unfortunately succumbed to adultery. Adultery is very interesting because they all say the same thing. Well, my spouse wasn't doing this. And this person is my soulmate, but it feels so right. Of course, it feels so right. Your spirituality is in the tank. And you're giving in to your fleshly feelings. And what's happening in the brain on a neurophysiological level is the brain, the neurons being bathed with dopamine. It feels great. You think you're on top of the world, but it's still wrong and it's sinful, right? Judas was clouded by his sin. His judgment was off the charts. What did he think they were going to do with Jesus? Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled? Then it must happen thus. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done so that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. What's amazing is Jesus rebuked Peter, as well as those who were supposed to to be in spiritual authority. He maintains his dignity and full control over the situation. Now, Luke and John tell us that Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear, and his name was Malchus. Uh, and Jesus reattaches it without the aid of microsurgery. So it was pretty good there. Uh, and in John 18, he adds that Jesus, when they were looking for Jesus, said, you know, he said, who, Jesus, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. Now that's translated, translated, I am he. But in essence, in the Greek, he says, ego, me. He says, I am. And they all fell back. And you might look at that and say, well, how could that be? It's almost like he roared, you know, he just was going to say, listen, he gave them every opportunity to know what they were doing, engaging in that sin, I am, which was the name that God gave to Moses all the way back in Exodus 3. I am, I am God. There's a really good study to uh, look at all the scriptures that see or speak about Jesus's claim of deity. Now, Christ tried to prepare the disciples often for these harsh events that were coming up, but they didn't take it seriously enough. And in time of crisis, they failed. And we can do the same. We can be a part of the Christian culture for years. We can do the do. We can like the social aspects of it, going to church, having that attendance, right? But not really letting it permeate our being, not really walking. That's why the, the, it's called a Christian walk, because it's a day-to-day thing. Every day I get up, I the first thing, one of the first things I think of is my father, in heaven. And I'm like, wow, I'm alive again today. Lord, what are we going to do today? You know, and before I go to bed, it's, I mean, and in in between as well, but it's a walk and it's not a chore. It's a relationship, right? That's what's important. And if we're not walking, then what happens in a moment of crisis, what will happen is fear and irrationality will take over and it'll guide us. But we want that to happen less and less, and we need to walk more and more, and that will happen less and less. So Peter and probably some of the other disciples take an aggressive posture to defend him with good intentions, but they fail. When Jesus backs them off, they all disappear. Like, well, this is how we want to defend you. Jesus is like, no, it's not how it's going to happen. And then they think, well, so now we're defenseless. Um, They're taking him. They might take us. And they take off. They forsook him and fled. Okay? They were going to save their own skin. But the blessing is we see later on in scripture that they are restored. That there's repentance, there's restoration, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they really set the world on fire for Christ. So that's the, the good news there. But I think what's really neat, if, if I can stop for a moment, I did pray and I felt the Lord leading me to pray about some that may have walked in here today. And, you know, when the Lord gives me a sense, I know that it's real. You know, I know that it was that prayer uh, that he, he, he opened up my eyes to some that are coming in here that are struggling. All right? Some of you are struggling today. And I really want to encourage you, because the disciples failed over and over. I mean, we're talking about a few hours here, and look at how many failures we can check off on the list. And he restores them, and they set the world on fire for Christ. So I really want to encourage those of you who have come into this place with those struggles, and let the word really lift you up today. If there's hope for them, if there's hope for the Apostle Paul in his struggles, there's hope for us. Verse 53, this is interesting. Jesus says, well, I always say that this is interesting. The whole Bible's interesting. So I just, <laughs> Jesus, he said to them, don't you realize that I could command my father, I could ask my father and he can command 12 legions of angels to defend me. Now we have to stop and scratch our head and say, why wouldn't he do it himself? He is all powerful. Now I have a theory and I'm going to go into it. I would say that he couldn't. And I'm gonna later give you a short list of the things that God can't do. You see, his first coming was not for judgment. His second coming is. In his first coming, he never used his divine power to hurt anyone. That's why all the the, um, the scandal around the Gospel of Thomas, ooh, that apocryphal work. I read the Gospel of Thomas, didn't do anything to my faith. But in that gospel, first of all, it's a third century, it doesn't really you can't get much earlier than that. But Jesus kills people in that gospel. It just doesn't jive with the rest of the scripture. It's not his nature. It wasn't in the divine plan. You see, when he came to the first time, for the first time, he would not hurt a life. But make no mistake, he will come in judgment. And when that happens, he won't spare a life. Now, where's the encouragement there? Well, if you're here today, you you are right now in the age of grace. So the Lord returns in judgment. We are in the age of grace. Thank God he waited long enough for me to be saved. Because I didn't grow up in salvation. Uh, thank you, Lord. And I just pray for anyone here, if that is your desire to know Him, you are still. Today is the day of salvation. He wants that for you. Remember, when we meet God again in His full glory, it's either going to be because we want to, because we love Him, and He says He puts His arm around us like a father to a child, or we're going to meet Him in judgment because we've rebelled against Him, we've spurned His way of salvation. It's your choice. That's the beauty of it. The whole world has a choice to meet him under good terms, right? To receive him as their Lord and Savior. Verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And there's so many scriptures that are fulfilled in Isaiah and the Psalms. and I mean, it's just endless, the scriptures that were fulfilled in in these short events. Uh, But Christ now is left alone to go through a series of six trials. And we'll see that more next Sunday. Three of the Jewish leadership and three of the Roman government, and we'll cover that. Verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. Not bad to be in the religious system. He actually had his own palace in Jerusalem. Now, uh, if you really do a quick study of history, it, this was a business. Religion was a business, and they did very well off of that business. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? So, the little history, um, you can look at your Bible and then you can go into Roman historians and you can see a parallel. Uh, Annas was the high priest, 6 to 15 AD. He was deposed by the Romans, probably they couldn't control him and they uh, put in Joseph Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, and he served between A.D. 18 through A.D. 36, uh, probably a little bit more controllable, but the people really respected Annas, and he sometimes was still a force behind Joseph Caiaphas. So this is all history, and we're going to go into the six trials next time. But to say that Jesus was a political football is an understatement. And today, to say Jesus is still a political football is still an understatement. I mean, you can go, this is the weirdest thing. I I read a child was, you know, and it's, it's many accounts. In our country, a child bowed their head in the cafeteria to pray, and the teacher grabbed the child and sent them to the principal's office because you can't do that but you can celebrate Halloween in school and you can say that you've converted to Wiccan and you support Mother Nature and you, do, uh, you hold hands and, and dance around the tree under a nature service or you've become a Buddhist and that's all acceptable. Once you say the name of Jesus Christ, everybody, everyone's ears perk up. I just want to pray even if they're praying silently. So Jesus is still a political football, make no mistake. You can take all the other religions and the philosophies and put them together, and they're acceptable. Once you say the name of Jesus Christ, the authorities get upset and they panic. Well, what do we do about this Jesus situation? Well, they did the same thing back then and it still carries through today. The absurdity of the courts, courts that have been there for hundreds of years, and the Ten Commandments engraved in stone, in marble, beautiful uh, artwork, artesian work. And they, you know, somebody's got to call the ACLU. That's offensive, do not kill, do not steal. You're in court. You're probably there because you did one of those things, right? So what they do is they put curtains, I've seen it, pictures of it, curtains over the, the marble, or they fill it in with cement. And 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 cover it. It's it's just so shameful. Somebody might get offended, but that's where we are. Jesus is still a political football. Six trials, what do we do with this guy? Bounce him from Annas to Caiaphas to the, the council to Herod or to Pilate to Herod to Pilate. Finally they crucify him. So that's what's going on here. History also tells us that Annas and Caiaphas were both Sadducees. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the afterlife. So what did they think was going to happen when they died? But they were the religious system. And religion, staunch religion, will always be against a relationship with God. The things that Jesus said they didn't want to hear because it didn't fit with their theology. Verse 61. They accused Jesus of saying he would destroy the temple, and if we read John's gospel, what he said was, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and it will be raised up in three days, meaning the resurrection. So they twisted his words. You know, you ever do that? You say something, and a person accuses you, apparently a lot of you. They say, well, he said, no, I didn't say that. It sounds like that, but this is what I said. And they twist it, and now all of a sudden you're in trouble. So these were charges of really terrorism. You're going to blow up the the temple? That's pretty serious. But we know that their uh, desire really was to get him crucified, so they went with the the, uh, false accusers. But Jesus, what did he do? He didn't answer. He didn't say a word. He didn't defend himself. Like a sheep before her shearers did not open its mouth, right? And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been in that situation at some time where somebody attacks you and they say things about you and they're on the offense and you're playing defense. Sometimes it's just to just to walk away from the argument. I mean, I can tell you there's times that I've engaged in things I shouldn't have. And I said, why did I let them suck me into that? You know what I'm saying? So as we get a little older and a little wiser, we just, you don't have to show up to every fight that's um, put up against you. However, he does answer one question, and we'll cover that. Verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So, of course, they're mocking him at this point. But Jesus, why did he answer the last charge? By the living God, I adjure you. Are you the Son of God? He couldn't help himself. Remember, I spoke about some of the things that God can't do Um, God can't take his own life, God can't lie. God can't go back on his promises. Yes, it's a short list, but there is a list of things that God cannot do. God, you know, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I would say probably not. Uh, But the bottom line is here, God can't go against his nature. He was adjured by the living God. Are you the son of God? He can't say no. So this this is beautiful here. And the high priest knew it, so he put Christ in that position. We need to stop for a moment and ask, do we realize how important it is to us and our preservation and our survival in the afterlife that God keeps his promises? So I think, you know, as we go through this, you just imagine all the things were going through Christ's mind. Um, you know, he, it just was unfair. You know, he couldn't even have a little comfort, a little prayer at the end. Nobody stood with him. He's getting um, accused of things he didn't do by sinners or actually standing in judgment of him. He's take all these things together. It's amazing that he went to the cross, but I'm thankful that he did. He kept his promises. He fulfilled prophecy. He knew what he needed to do, regardless of all these things that were happening to to, to him. And we may say to ourselves, but, you know, we may do it. We may bail out on others. We may uh, fail. We may say we're going to do something and not. We may throw others under the bus so that it can preserve ourselves." But Jesus did none of that. Even when we aren't faithful to him and others, Jesus is faithful to us. Now in verse 64, he just basically, a little prophecy here, he says, you'll see me again coming in the right hand of power, and this is for judgment. For the aggregate spiritual system that was antagonistic to him, when he came in judgment, when they saw him, if they didn't repent, they were going to have serious problems. Uh, In verse 65, they say he speaks blasphemy. Again, do a a simple study on how many times the Lord claimed to be God. Some will say to you, well, I heard that Jesus never claimed to. I've heard this before. You know, he never claimed to be God. Well, let me show you some scriptures. John 8, John 10, here. uh, If the religious leaders are accusing him of blasphemy, which was worthy of death in their law, equating yourself to be God, uh, you know, they knew more about the law than we do. Uh, you know, Jesus even said to the followers that don't do what they do, but do what they say, because they know the law. You know, these guys memorize this stuff. Right? Verse sixty-nine, the last few verses. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, "You also were with Jesus of Galilee." But he denied it before them all, saying, "I do not know what you are saying." And when he had gone out of the gateway. Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a while, those who stood by came to him and said to Peter, surely you are one of them because your speech betrays you if you do a little study on this Galileans had a certain role to their their voice and they had a certain dialect that everybody knew if you spoke that you were a Galilean so your speech betrays you 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 must have been hanging around with them they they saw it and and I can hear it and we can put two and two together then he began to curse and swear this is Peter by the way right there's hope for us saying I right so a lot of you feeling a little low this morning apparently Um, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Then he went out and wept bitterly, bitterly. Okay, so Peter, now let's just, let me tell you how bad this was. Cursing, swearing is not what we would understand in our vernacular, in our culture. Okay, when you would swear back then, it would be more of an oath. And what you would do is you would call the living God. Imagine Peter walking with the Son of God saying, by God, as God is my witness, I do not know the man. Don't ask me that question again. Wow, what a stunner. Powerful. So should we throw Peter under the bus and say, what a coward? No, why not? Because Maybe we've done that to a lesser extent. Maybe in a social circle. And believe me, one of the biggest impediments to a strong walk with the Lord that I've seen is relationships. I've got to have this relationship. You don't understand what this does for me. You don't understand that I need this person. I do not know the man. Maybe that relationship and that person won't really last if you have to uh, you know, walk being with the Lord. Maybe it'll, it'll irritate that person, right? So we've said it before, haven't we? Maybe in professional circles, that's another one. You don't understand, I really need this job. You know, even if I'm asked, I've got to tone it down for now. And for now becomes months and months becomes years and you're just not a light in that workplace. Trust God. doesn't mean you have to be obnoxious and be all over them. I mean, but what it means is that we sometimes say, I do not know the man, right? What about when we are not a good example? What about as mature believers where we wouldn't do either of the two, but we go against his word at times and others are watching us? And, and I wonder if we could see the Lord's face right now when we do those things, would he kind of be disappointed? Maybe we would weep bitterly as well. See, Peter had the... Um, the he was, I guess, fortunate enough to actually see the Lord and his expression. And I don't think it was a look of anger that the Lord had or a look of, you know, I'm going to get you when I come down from this cross. I don't think that was it. I think it was a look of sorrow, you know? And, and Peter saw that look and he was crushed. He wept bitterly, but he turned his life around. See, that's the beauty. There's hope for us. Should have named this message, There's Hope for Us. But what do we see? That the disciples blew it big time. And later they get back on track. And we'll do the same thing because we're dichotomous. We are flesh and we are spirit. We're going to mess up. But don't let, like Judas, that despondency overtake you and bury you. See, that's, that's a, a trick of the devil. You know, we oh, I shouldn't have gone back to this. Or I did something last night. Oh, it's all lost. And I shouldn't even go to church or read my Bible or pray. No, that's a, a, a tool of the enemy. We, we do what Peter did. Judas did something else, but Peter got back into the right fellowship with the Lord. Right? As an immature believer, I, I may have read this and said, gee, I would never do that. But as I matured, I realized I've done that in my own way and in my own time. And faithful Jesus becoming sin for us so that we could have life. It wasn't fitting for the Son of God to go through what he went through, humiliating. What did he do? Hebrews 12, 2, and I'll quote part of that. It says, he, Christ, who for the joy set before him. What's the joy? To see us saved and not perish and have everlasting life. So Jesus went through all this horrible stuff knowing that the joy, you and you and you and me, we were his joy billions and trillions of those who have come to Christ and their sins have been forgiven for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. That joy for him is us. We fail, we fail him, we fail each other, but he never fails. He's always faithful. He could have refused to drink this cup. He could have said, Father, these people are unbelievable. Even the ones that I minister with and I rate, where's the guy that I raised from the dead? How come he's not with me? One of us would have said that, but not Jesus. He didn't complain. He didn't argue. He just went through it. That's what I love about my Lord. Sometimes it just takes a study of the word to really appreciate what he's done for us. Right? Romans 5 says, perhaps someone would die for a good man, but God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners and rebelling against him and spitting in his face, he died for us. Wow. So in a moment, before we uh, close in prayer, I'm going to ask you to really consider what you've heard today. And if you don't know the Lord, to just really see what he's done for you. Me, I just walked into this church today. Yes, you as an individual. Whatever your problem is, whatever you came in here for, God loves you. And I really want to encourage you with that today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord...